Come on, come on, come on, come on. Welcome to the inaugural edition of Outspoken. Happy anniversary, Outspoken. <laughs> this is our one-year anniversary of Outspoken. Happy two-year anniversary. <laughs> I got a call from Art initially asking me if I would tell a story for this brand new idea uh, for storytelling in Chicago. Outspoken number one of year number Thank you so much. We had no idea that when we started this, now four years ago, that people would continue to come. Of course, we could have held this event in a local library, but actually a gay bar may have been even more appropriate. It's where lots of stories have taken place. <laughs> Our first program of year five. I know. Hard to believe. We've been together four years. That's longer than most gay marriages. <laughs> the largest crowd we've ever had for Outspoken, so thank you, thank you, thank you. About 150 storytellers have been on this stage in the last two years, isn't that amazing? There is one LGBTQ specific, and that's this. They have shared with us not only their personal stories, but we've also heard LGBTQ history that you will not find in any history book anywhere in the United States. LGBTQ stories. Thanks for uh, being a part of uh, what we hope will be a continuing series. So I thought I was telling one story and I thought I was co-hosting one time. <laughs> we thought maybe a month, maybe four or five months, and here we are. We're in our first Outspoken of year six. That's right, it's our birthday! This month marks the sixth anniversary of Outspoken. Every month since August 2014, until the pandemic, people from all over Chicago have gathered at Sidetrack, one of the city's longest-running gay bars, to hear stories told live by LGBTQ people, and some of our allies. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is On The Mic, our podcast diving into six years of Outspoken archives. For our big anniversary, we're bringing you a story from our very first show and some other tales celebrating iconic queer Chicago. Today we'll hear stories from a young trans man looking for love on Chicago's party line, a bartender in the thriving local gay bars of the late 70s and early 80s, and a young lesbian's journey to co-founding some of the earliest gay papers in Chicago. Let's get into it. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience. Each storyteller at Outspoken speaks from their unique perspective, and their views do not represent those of other speakers, the hosts, Outspoken, or Sidetrack. And if you're enjoying the show while you're listening, hop on to Apple Podcasts to give us a rating or a little review to boost the show to new listeners. Thank you. If, if I were to give you a full list of the awards the honors, the achievements, we would be here for a very long time. Tracy Bame, whom many of us call the queen of all media in Chicago. Tracy has won awards after awards after awards because nobody in the United States has done so much for the wide range of media that we all rely upon. And we're honored to have Tracy here in Chicago. 
In addition to all of that, we can talk about halls of fame, we can talk about lifetime achievements, we can talk about Peter Lissagor Awards, we can talk about movies she's produced, plays she's produced. Tracy's dedication to archiving and maintaining the history of our community is quite remarkable. And I've known Tracy from the, her very first days uh, as a journalist in Chicago. Much has happened in our complex communities in the last 20, 30 years. And because of Tracy's work, we're gonna all be remembering it, the good and the bad. We're thrilled to have, telling her very first story, please welcome Tracy Bain. I think this was setting me up for some kind of mass public embarrassment failure. Um, <laughs> my comeuppance. Um, so uh, I had a lot of things I wanted to tell and then uh, this morning I tested it out on my partner and she said, no, that's probably not gonna work. I was gonna tell the history of typesetting. <laughs> because in reality, half the reason I'm in media is because I loved typesetting in high school. And I, at 10 years old, helped my mother lay out issues of the Chicago Defender. So I actually really love the physical side of newspapers and I hope they stay in a physical form for a very long time. Um, I have hot lead burns from the hot lead typesetting machines of Lane Technical High School in 1976. Um, and uh, so it was actually gonna be a good story, but I'm not gonna go there. Um, I'm happy to, I'll do that on the internet somewhere. Um, so I was gonna, now I talked to David and I said, well, I'll tell a little bit about the founding of Windy City Times and the drama of the Chicago 1980s gay community, which is absolutely no different than the drama of the 20 teens of, uh, of this time. But, um, you know, back in, so I started in 1984 at Gay Life Newspaper. I was uh, born and raised Chicagoan, but I had gone away to school for four years to Des Moines, Iowa um, to get my journalism degree. And I had a choice to make coming out of college. One of them was to be a typesetter. I truly wanted to be a typesetter, and thankfully I did not choose that career because it was dead in two years, um, <laughs> as opposed to media in 30. Um, so, so, and then I had a choice to go to the mainstream media, which my stepfather worked at the Chicago Tribune and my mother worked in alternative media. So I had these two different role models. Uh, my mother in alternative media, no money, but freedom. My dad at the Tribune where everything was stifling and horrible and then eventually Sam Zell came. So those were my, <laughs> those were two, two tracks uh, to go. And so um, I was openly gay in high school, in high school and college and and I wasn't gonna go back in the closet. And in 1984, you really could not be an openly gay journalist in the mainstream media. There were one or two people in the entire country, Randy Schultz being one of them in San Francisco, that could actually be openly gay. And my stepfather had been at the Tribune at that point, probably about 20 years, and he had gay friends at the Tribune, and he told me I couldn't work at the Tribune and be openly gay, meaning he was warning me that they would never accept me. So I did a freelance, a few freelance gigs for the Chicago Tribune on like home heater safety. Um, and uh, my mother, my mother found out that there was an opening for a part-time position at Gay Life newspaper. In Des Moines, Iowa, there was no gay press. I didn't really understand there was a gay press until I graduated college. And so within a month of graduating with this news editorial degree, I was working at Gay Life newspaper. And it's because I could run the typesetting machine. It was about as, it was maybe 
almost as big as that, I think. Um, and it was a photographic machine that was a huge leap forward technologically from the hot lead machines. I'm telling you, it was a, just a dream to be able to do this. And it was, it was the precursor to HTML coding. So really, it was a pivotal moment in my, in my life. So anyway, Chuck Renslow at Gay Life Newspaper hired me, I think in part because I knew how to run the typesetting machine, and I could take photos, and I could write, and I could edit. So really, I think it's almost no different today. If you can do video and audio and all this stuff, you're just more employable in media. Um, so I got a part-time job there, and uh, it turns out, just prior to me getting there, there had been two sexual uh, discrimination lawsuits that women had filed because they did not feel that they were treated fairly financially or um, in any other way, really working at Gay Life Newspaper. It wasn't just because we were located right next door to the men's bathhouse at all. <laughs> um, but I think it was just the culture of 1970s Chicago, the, the divisions within... Um, the lesbian and gay community back then, right prior to I, my starting in 84, were really severe. Very, you know, and, and women were rightfully very upset with being tokenized and treated badly and, and just like all the things that we face in the community now. But what changed in 1984, and I feel the biggest honor that I was, that the moment in time I was born in 1963 brought me to the moment in time in 1984 where our community was about to experience um, this traumatic, dramatic shift in all of our lives. Um, there were fewer than 100 cases of AIDS in 1984 in Chicago that were diagnosed. There were probably many more people who had it, but in 1984, they had just developed the test for HIV a couple months before I started. And people were just starting in Chicago because it hit Chicago, the waves hit Chicago just a little bit behind the coast. So New York and San Francisco and LA had already experienced pretty large scale um, passages within their community, but Chicago was really just, um, that was just happening. And I was 21 years old and I felt like I had been dropped into the middle of a war zone. Um, a war zone of politics, meaning the divisions along race and class and gender in our community, but certainly a war zone of death. I was covering people who were dying, who were my age and just slightly older. Um, I was covering serial killers that were targeting our community, mainly from within. We had people who were, you know, so oppressed within their own lives that they they killed people they had sex with because they couldn't live with themselves, um, and, and AIDS. And AIDS was um, something that I still, to this day, can't believe that anybody psychologically survived um, that lived through that, um, that saw what we saw in the middle of a, a vibrant, bustling Chicago community that ignored it. And to be in media for me, meant that I was friends with people in a, a small community, whether, whether it's Des Moines, Iowa, or Chicago, if you're covering a small niche community within that community, you know everybody. And you begin, you know, I know most of the people in this room, you begin to get acquaintances and friendships with people, and we had colleagues at our paper as well. Um, so Windy City Times, so I started a Gay Life in 84, May, May or June of 84, and 18 months later, a group of us left Windy City Times to start, I mean, I'm sorry, Gay Life Newspaper to start Windy City Times. That's a whole other story I'm not gonna go into, but that was drama. Um, and so Windy City Times started, uh, Jeff McCourt, Bob Bearden, who were partners, uh, Drew Badanish, our art director, and myself as managing editor. I was 22, we founded Windy City Times. Um, we did it, and I just drove by the apartment today. It was in a, a third floor walk up on Melrose Avenue, uh, was, was Jeff and Bob's apartment. The typesetting machine was in the basement, typesetting. Um, 
it was it was the basement had broken windows. People were I had Georgette Harper, Tony Armstrong Jr., and Lynn Hull were freezing their fingers off all winter, typesetting the paper with dust blowing in. We had to run the stuff up to the third floor, um, and so here we are, you know, dreaming the dream. We're starting this newspaper in the middle of an epidemic. Um, and we knew that it wasn't an objective thing that you could do. You had to be just as angry and mad as Danny Sotomayor and everybody else about this epidemic, but still make sure you told their stories. Make sure you wrote their obits, so, because nobody else was writing their obits. The Tribune would write obits and they would deny who we were if they wrote an obit at all. They wrote obits for their own employees that they denied who they were. There were four prominent Chicago Tribune reporters who my father knew had died of AIDS, and they did, it did not say that in their obits. So we knew how important what we were doing was back then. I knew, I almost felt like I was seeing 50 years on, and I wanted to make sure those stories, every single person I met, their stories were in the paper so that someone was looking. 50 years from now, they could see that. Because 50 years before 1984, when I started, was 1934. We don't have those stories of our community. Very few stories survived 19, from the 1930s about our community. So I was, always felt like I was in the middle of this pivot point of our community. And it was so important to get everybody's story down. Um, within a few weeks of uh, Windy City starting, Bob, the fourth co-founder, uh, started getting sick. And uh, one of our writers, Richard Cash, um, pretty, pretty young man, he couldn't stand the thought of living with this disease because in 1985 there was nothing. There was nothing to be done. Um, and he got diagnosed and died within seven days. And he was really good friends with Bob. And Bob took that really, really hard. Bob was also a very handsome, strong, sturdy man. He was the reason I really left Gay Life to start Windy City Times. He was our sales manager and a very charismatic guy. Um, and he and Jeff were partners, but they fought and they fought and they fought. And we were working out of their apartment and they were fighting constantly. It was horrible, horrible um, experience for everybody around. It was traumatic. And um, I said to myself, if Bob goes, I go. I'm leaving. Because I couldn't be, I couldn't be there if he wasn't there. And um, Bob did eventually die. And I left to start a publication called Outlines. And Jeff McCourt, my other co-founder, uh, I think Drew was already, um, he already had left pretty soon after we started. Um, Jeff and I fought for 13 years. For 13 years, Jeff McCourt and I never said a word to each other. We fought and we fought and we fought in this community for uh, a different vision. We had different visions. Um, not necessarily always competing visions, but different visions about what media was and what, what, what we did. And I think it made both of us uh, fight harder and stronger. He always succeeded, and I always failed. But somehow, uh, I think Art Johnston compared to me, a, me to a cockroach one time in a, as a compliment. Uh, um, <laughs> it was. It, I took it as a compliment because he said, when everybody else is gone, you're going to still be uh, publishing a newspaper. Um, so, so outlines outlines newspaper. <laughs> Outlines newspaper started in June of 1987. We started Black Lines on newspaper. We started M. Levita newspaper. We did Nightlines newspaper. We did all these. We did all these really fun things, and none of them ever made a nickel. Um, <laughs> and and I never was in it for that. I think that's why it was lasting longer than everybody else. The money was there in the 90s, and it all went to Windy City Times. And unfortunately, it created a, uh, created a lot of uh, trauma within Windy City Times. And we were kind of just watching from the sidelines. In 1999, he suffered another. Uh, he suffered a staff walkout, um, similar to when we left to start Outlines. But this one was much more devastating. He called me the day it happened, 
And he said, Tracy, you know, this was always your baby. Um, and I said, you know, Jeff, I wish you luck. They fought each other. We had three weekly newspapers for a year in this community, Chicago Free Press, Windy City Times, and us. I told my staff, just breathe. They're gonna, it's gonna be a war. It's gonna be a much worse than when we were fighting with Jeff. And it was, they sued each other. They, people were stealing newspaper bundles. People were blocking, they were, you know, newspaper blocking. They were doing everything. Um, and, and, and Jeff won the battle. He won the lawsuit, but he lost the war. He had to close his paper on August, in August of uh, 2000. And again, he called me, he said he was, I was the first one he called. And I said, Jeff, I'll buy that paper for the number I can only prove because I, I said I don't trust you. I said, I, I, I'll buy it for your national ads value in one year because I can call your ad agency and find that number out. And again, I could go on and on. But eventually, a few weeks later, his lawyers convinced him this was the right thing to do, and it happened. Um, so I was able to get back in, uh, I guess, uh, end of 2000, uh, Winnie City Times, and uh, I'd like to say I was like getting my foster baby back. So thank you very much for letting me be the first story. Thank you. Please know that if I ever refer to Trace as a cockroach, <laughs> Keola's birthday party. It was a compliment. <laughs> it was a compliment because I always said that Tracy was the most determined newspaper person anywhere. And what I said was, if the end of the world comes and there's nobody left but cockroaches, there will always be a newspaper published by Tracy. If Tracy has to carve it, if she has to carve it with stone, uh, with a, a hammer on a piece of stone and hand deliver type it. Typesetting, typesetting. Typesetting. There will always be a Tracy Bame newspaper. Tracy, thank you very much. Wow. By the way, Art Johnston's prediction about Tracy Bame was correct. She's now the publisher of the Chicago Reader. Jay Smith. Oh, and Jace has fans. <laughs> Jace wears many hats. He is a fundraiser by day and manages a college access program for at-risk youth. By night, he is an entrepreneur. He has owned Embrace Your Fit, personal training company for 15 years. Uh, Jace is also a nutrition coach. Jace co-hosts the Life Lab, Mega Minds Building Mega Bodies radio show. His show airs bi-weekly. Jace believes that by being of service to others, he can increase his reach and impact the lives of members of the most vulnerable. Let's welcome Jace to the stage. How's everybody doing? Okie dokie. All right, so where my Chicago heads at? Woo woo, South Side. Really excited, man, to be here. So I'm happy. I hope you'll be inspired. Um, I'll share some words with you. So Chicago heads, 80s babies, give me another holla. 90s rays. Yeah. How many of y'all remember the party line? Now, oh, 
Okay, okay, I got a couple of hands. Well, for those of you who don't know the party line, this was before I had a computer in my house, okay? And so we would dial into this 1-800 number, and you could go into this party line, and you could meet people from all over the world. You didn't have to be from Chicago to meet these cats, right? So you would go in, and you could be anybody you wanted to be. And I discovered the party line when I was in seventh grade. <laughs> yeah, I learned a lot about sex that year. <laughs> And so in the party line, man, you know, I was like, man, I, I, I want to be, you know, somebody else. So I really had this, I had this older cousin, his name was Chico, and my pop's name is Mac, right? And I was like, well, my dad's name Mac, and this dude named Chico, I'm going to be Rico. So I wanted to be Rico. And so I practiced making my voice deep, you know, got all down low. <laughs> now, I practiced on the phone my swag, because <laughs> I had to have that right. And I just practiced my pickup lines because I knew exactly what the ladies wanted to hear because I knew exactly what I wanted to hear. So I was like, you know what, I know what I want to say, so I'm going to be the most mature seventh grader in the world when I go out here and talk to these people on the party line, okay? Now, my phone privileges was about 9 o'clock. That means I couldn't really be on the phone. So I would crawl on my belly from the back of the house, military style, to get to the cordless phone, which was in the middle of the house, be on it all night, crawl all the way back to my room with the phone so I can talk longer, just in case I wanted to call back in in the middle of the night, wake up, gotta go pee, go call people. And then I would put the phone back in. I thought my parents would catch on to this, you know? I thought they were bright, like, oh, they would catch on. And every morning my dad would be like, why is the damn phone dead? And I'd be like, <laughs> Rico was caking last night, pops. So after about a year of being on the party line, I was like, yo, could I get a girl? Like, could I meet an actual girl on the party line? So I was like, okay, I think I can do this. But it was one problem, right? I had everything ready, but I had a nine-year-old brother. I know the lady was talking about kids. Yeah, I don't like that little fucker. I had a nine-year-old brother, and I forgot to talk to him about my master plan about getting the girl to come over to the house and it was all messed up. So, you know, I met her, and she told me sweet nothings. All the kind of stuff she wanted to do to me. And I was excited. I believed every word she said. I was like, yes. So we exchanged real numbers because that's what we had to do. Because I, I was tired of calling in on this 1-800 thing. I was like, you know, we got a house phone, and I need you to be able to call me. And every time she would call the house, they would say, Rico, don't live here. <laughs> <laughs> But I was like, no, mom, I do. Um, um, okay, I'm going to call her back. Star six nine, star six seven, how do I do it? <laughs> and so after three weeks, we set a date. We were like, you know what? We're going to meet, y'all. And I was excited, so I picked out the flyest outfit. I had a plaid shirt. It was hella big. Like, I mean, I, I was probably, man, I was probably 115 pounds wet. And so I'm like 169 wet right now. So it was hella big. And these oversized drawstring khakis, right? And then I had these fresh, my Chicago heads know I had some fresh Air Force Ones because that's how we do it in Chicago. You got to have them Nikes on, boy. And that ain't a plug. But I'm just saying, you got to have them Nikes, right? So I got ready, and I was like, you know what? I want her to come, and I want her to see Rico, and I want to be ready for her. So I made sure I had grabbed some extra socks and stuffed them all up in this region down here. 
so she could be, because she was telling me all kind of stuff she wanted to do with me, so I was like, I don't want her to be disappointed, so I want to make sure I had extra for her to, you know, grab a hold to. <laughs> and so we were ready, we were ready, and we was ready for this meeting, man, and so I'm geeked up, man, it's about to happen, man. And the doorbell rings, and my, my ass <laughs> was too busy upstairs getting ready, getting pretty. I was getting pretty, and my little brother, the nine-year-old brother, heard the doorbell ring, and so he runs downstairs. And I thought we had the conversation about don't talk to strangers, but something happened. He missed that, and he opened the door anyway. And when the girl said, I'm here to speak to Rico, his reply was, don't know Rico live here. <laughs> now, I know you're probably wondering what that means, but I'll get to that in a minute. So I came downstairs, and I was ready. I was like, oh my god, oh my god I'm, I'm Rico. And he just looked at me with this, like, confused look, like, no, you ain't. <laughs> and I'm just like, what the fuck? So I was like, oh, my God, my little brother just outed me. He just outed me. And I said, we'll get to that in a minute, so pay attention to the story. He outed me. And I was like, okay, okay. So after, a <laughs> after this, I, I couldn't remember if, if I got to say hello quite quicker than she said goodbye because I saw her backside. She was out. She was just like, this is weird, and I'm going. See, so after, you know, next year, we're in driver's ed class. I walk in the driver's ed class, and there she is, y'all. <laughs> no, it wasn't good. She scowled at me with this dark stare. But she was classy enough that she never shared what happened between us that summer. It was Christmas in July. See, this was the best Christmas of my life because this was the time that I figured out I can be unapologetically me. It didn't really matter, right? So Rico, he evolved over time, those four years in high school. And with every transfer, he went to four different high schools, y'all, by the time he graduated. And with every transfer, he got more cocky. And let me explain. See, I learned how to roll a joint in 60 seconds. Probably like under 60 seconds, because I started in sixth grade, but don't tell my mom I said that. <laughs> I kept my, my pockets fat for Mickey D's and Burger King, so I knew I could take the ladies out, you know, feed them really well. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I had it all planned out. And I was funny. And I, you know what I'm saying? I was cool. I was a catch. And I was confident, and I was cocky, and I was like, yeah, I'm Rico. So I get to this last high school, and this is the top of my senior year. So just for the people, don't transfer your children in the senior year of high school. Like, it just sucks, right? So I had to come with mad swag, like mad swag. I had to be ready. And I was. I was ready, man. And so I got a girlfriend, man, within a month of being at that school, like, all the girls wanted me, and I was like, I'm available to you. And so I got a girlfriend, but the queer kid wants to go to prom. The queer kid wants to go to prom. So by this time, I was already out the house, and that's a whole other sad story. My parents didn't really want me no more once they figured out I was queer. So I was kind of on my own, so I went downtown Chicago, and I went to this boutique to pick out my prom suit. Champagne and black. Yeah. Cornrows to the back. I was slick. My shirt was so, it was so big. It, they didn't make them for me, you know. The neck was too big. I was swimming in that suit, but I was proud because I saved my money from working at McDonald's to get that damn suit, and I wore it with pride. Rumor has it, though, the next year that they banned kids like me from attending prom. 
They didn't want to be too inclusive. They were like, uh-uh, queer kids? Nah, nah, you can't be in prom. But another statement was to be made. And I know you're probably wondering what that is. You see, because Rico, he grew. See, the little boy is the man that's standing in front of you today. But Rico, he went from Rico to Jay to Jace. And see, most of the time, Rico or Jace lives a stealth life, except for today. So I just outed myself on stage, and what you see is not who, who I was. See, there was a little girl inside. It was a little boy that started off as a little girl that grew into the man that stands before you. And so when my nine-year-old brother outed me, I was torn because I knew I was the queer kid with a capital T. Trans since I was the day I was born, my mom said when I came out the womb. I was like, I'm a boy. What is this vagina? Hell no. <laughs> but the cool thing about it was I had that space to grow. And now I can be the invisible man that many people don't know. So I walk about the streets of Chicago repping who I am. But deep down inside, I will always be Jen. Thank you. take a minute at Outspoken to remind ourselves that our community has a long history, especially in Outspoken's home of Chicago. Much of our early 90s history was well documented in 21 episodes of a local cable access program called The 10% Show. Inspired by New York's gay cable network, John Ryan gathered volunteers, video cassette recorder from Sidetrack, and support from Roscoe's and his partner, Dr. Thomas Stevens, and in 1989, they launched their gay news program. Their production company was called SBC Productions, standing for Shitty But Cool Productions. The 10% show took cameras out to the streets during parades and protests, and even caught a confrontational community meeting at the Belmont Avenue and Sather, where Mayor Richard Daley angrily walked out. And I'm not freezing anybody out. I'm not taking an attitude of my re-election. This is ridiculous. I'm not gonna show anybody out. Mr. Mayor, it's not gonna Mr. Mayor, we would ask you to come back and answer our questions. Ten percent interviewed local leaders like writer and gay historian Marie J. Kuda and mainstream stars like the Weather Girls. Now you have a very large gay um, following. I'm sure that you know, but they are. <laughs> I thought there was just happy people, you know, because I'm not into labels. You know what um, I mean? Okay, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Now, um, people are good people. I don't care what they are. You know. That's what we'd love to hear. They profiled Alison Bechtel for her cartoon series Dykes to Watch Out For and interviewed local activist and national cartoonist Danny Sotomayor. All right, right now I have the pleasure to speak with Daniel Sotomayor, who's the head of the Chicago office of ACT UP. Daniel, can you tell us what's your views of what happened here today? Well, I think it was uh, pretty uh, apparent that uh, the mayor is not informed about um, a lot of issues and we're going down to City Hall tomorrow noon and bring out demands to City Hall. 
When ACT UP activists held a vigil outside Cook County Hospital and a demonstration outside City Hall where 128 protesters were arrested, 10% was filming there too. Also covered, of course, drag queen wrestling. I'm just gonna go ahead and ring the fucking bitch's neck. You gotta ring the bitch's neck. Oh my god! Yo, you oh, bitch! Don't, don't, don't try! Don't, don't even! Don't even start with me. Right, bitch, you need a referee in here. I'm not gonna stand around and stand here for all this bitch. You drop there. Oh, looks like she's a deep stuff over here. That round is Helen Keller versus Mildred Fierce. You can watch episodes of The 10% Show on YouTube, now being digitized by the Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Look for a link in the episode notes. This edition of The 10% Show is brought to you in part by Roscoe's. If you love the best dance music and the friendliest people, Roscoe's is the place to go, located in the heart of the community. And in part by Outlines Magazine, the voice of Chicago's gay and lesbian community. I am so pleased to introduce our next storyteller, who has been a force in Chicago acting, uh, directing uh, all the creative parts of Chicago, and the very well-known David Serda. David is a Chicago-based actor, songwriter, resident playwright, and co-founder and artistic director of Hell in a Handbag Productions. And he ought to get an award just for that name, Hell in a Handbag, Chicago's lead camp and parody theater company. As an actor, he has worked with Handbag, A Red Orchid, and A New Colony. Past shows include, that he's written include, Rudolph the Red-Hosed Reindeer, <laughs> The Birds, and Poseidon, an Upside Down Musical. As a songwriter, David is co-founder of the rock band The Jones, dedicated to giving Joan Crawford a rock and roll voice. Serta has also worked with Amazon Studios on an untitled animated film project. Please welcome David Serta. David, where are you? Oh, there we go. There we go. Come on. Can I scare you? All right. Let's see if I can hold my stomach in this long. I, I'm not used to performing in men's clothing, so you'll have to pardon me. All right. Thumb, 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 thumb
thump. I can still hear it, the incessant beat, the mandatory 120 beats per minute of all disco club songs. Thump, 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 thump. I was 22 in 1983, you do the math, and looking for a job, not just any job, a cool job, a fabulous job. My amazing new wave look prevented me from working in an office, but who was I kidding? No office in 1983 would hire me. <laughs> I had no skills and no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Well, that's not entirely true. I wanted to be seen. My look was sort of a cross between a zombie Jane Mansfield meets Speed Racer. I wanted to shake up the preppy-looking polo shirt-wearing, fluffy feathered hair, boat shoe-wearing morons <laughs> that walked the streets of Newtown in 1983. That's what we called it then, not Boys Town. We called it Newtown. Um, I wanted to thumb my nose at the disco-loving, show-tune-singing, Barbara Streisand-listening fags that treated me like I had the plague. So what did I do? I got a job sweeping up after them. <laughs> I, I forget how I found out about the Paradise Club, but that's how it started for me. Uh, I'll never forget the interview. I went in some early evening and met the bar manager. His name was Tony Finelli. I suppose he was in his 40s, but when you're 22, he might as well have been 100 years old. <laughs> he wore angel's flight pants, Google it, and a polyester disco shirt open halfway down, exposing a hairy chest with several gold chains with cream-colored loafers. He had long, dirty blonde hair that was thinning on top, and it looked like every worry he ever had left a mark on his face. <laughs> he looked sickly. Talking to me was the last thing he wanted to do, since I did not fit the category of a typical paradise hire, twink. If you want to know what a twink in 1983 looked like, all you have to do is rent a William Higgins gay porn film from that time, or Google Kurt Marshall, K-U-R-T Marshall, and you will know what a twink is. Blonde, young, smooth, blue eyes, hot. Everything I wasn't. I think he hired me just so he wouldn't have to talk to me anymore. I started on Halloween night, 1983. The theme was Hollywood, so I wore black fishnets on my arms, a ripped-up T-shirt, skin-tight black jeans, my Bananarama karate, um, karate boots. They weren't in the, in the, the videos. Um, yeah, I guess you had to be there. <laughs> and a long black hairpiece with plastic skulls attached to it. Only one bartender, Scotty, also known as Shelly, knew I had borrowed the look from Pete Burns of Dead or Alive. <laughs> Shelly was dressed like Doris Day, and he was the only plus-size bar plus bartender there, so we became fast friends. I figured this was the one time of the year that I could get away with being my authentic self there, and I was right. The typical Paradise uniform was short shorts and tank tops. The pecking order from the bottom up was sweeper, barback, waiter, bartender, and manager. And Eddie. Eddie, if you had to gall to ask, was the owner of Paradise. He had also owned the equally legendary bistro club in the 70s. 
This was the Studio 54 of Chicago, and it was an amazing club, I am told. I tried to go there when I was 19, but they weren't admitting anorexic brown kids with acne at the time. <laughs> Just blonde perm twinks with a willingness to do anything for a night of boogie fever. Eddie Dugan was not only the owner, but he was something more. He was a mysterious figure that we rarely saw. We being the commoners, the non-bartenders, the non-pretty, the non-famous. Every week, we would have a staff meeting, and the managers, Tony, Michael, or Chicago Molly, would rattle off do's and don'ts, and Eddie's latest wishes and commands. Eddie, Eddie wants everybody to dance behind the bar. Eddie wants everybody to stop taking so many bathroom breaks. Eddie wants everyone to wear neon headbands like in the Wham! video. <laughs> and my all-time favorite is, it's summer. Eddie wants everybody to work out, get a tan, and wear white shorts with, with Hawaiian shirts. I actually laughed out loud. This was like asking Dracula to wear a yellow leisure suit. <laughs> for me. It just wasn't done in my world, but I managed to find a somewhat cool vintage Hawaiian shirt and got away with that. Oh, Nina, you always have to be different. Nina was my given girl name. Everybody had them. It was a rite of passage in 1983 or in the 70s. There was Shelly and Jamma and Monique and Brenda. And, you know, I didn't mind being called Nina, but I hated being called her and girl. Sure, I wore eye makeup and hair pieces and fishnets, but I wasn't one of those old queens with the tacky gold jewelry cackling about Judy Garland and those old black and white movies. Who watched black and white movies? For being alternative, I was uptight as hell when it came to my own sexual identity and gender. My full name was Nina Nono, and it was given to me I didn't choose it. <laughs> it was given to me by Chicago Molly, another Chicago bar legend. Uh, and the origins came from the fact that I liked Nina Hagen, the weird German punk chanteuse. The second part of the name was Nina sounded like Nanette, and there was a musical called No No Nanette. So Nina No No. Of course, when Molly said this, everybody laughed hysterically. It was sort of like a sad gay rat pack there. <laughs> and Eddie was the anemic Frank Sinatra. I was 22. I thought I knew everything. I wore all black and was interested in counterculture art and music. And I thought most people were idiots. I could not, for the life of me, figure out this whole Eddie Dugan is God thing. He often talked down to us when he did talk to us at all, and he seemed to have no use for you unless you were attractive or famous. He would take certain staff members on trips to Las Vegas, and we heard all about the drugs and the debauchery. We had many famous people coming into this club, all the Broadway stars, and if I gave a fuck about theater at the time, I would know who they were, but I had no <laughs> idea who they were. But there were people I did know. Eartha Kitt, Joan Collins, Sylvester, Linda Clifford, Edward Kennedy, Jane Byrne, all came to paradise. I am not kidding. Jane Byrne was a trip. <laughs> Again, Eddie treated those people like gold. 
Now, the first time I found cocaine on the floor was as a sweeper. Sweeping the floor at Paradise, one would find all sorts of goodies. But uh, cocaine, that was the holy grail. Well, what do I do with it? I asked Andy, my best friend and roommate, who I got to help get a job there. You snort it. All of it? No, no, you give me some. Now, I was really, really cautious with it at first. But, um, you know, we all know how that story ends. You do a little at first. I could never get enough of that stuff, and neither could the entire staff. We were a bunch of mouth-twitching slaves, accusing each other of holding out. I'm not exaggerating. Paradise was the place, the only place I ever worked where you could get an advance with cocaine on your salary. You, I, you get a half, well, just take it out of your salary. Um, I, end, I eventually fit in in my own way, and we would party after hours in the VIP lounge and Eddie would let us drink all we wanted, free booze and cocaine on the floor. I was home. <laughs> Two years at Paradise seemed like a lifetime. It feels like I was there a long, long time. And between 1983 and 1985, every day was a new adventure. I went from Cinderella, and there were some very, very horrible customers there that treated me like dirt, which, you know. Uh, to, <laughs> I'm not bitter. Uh, <laughs> but then there are also the people who thought I was this exotic punk rock creature who want, uh, to take home and they wanted to have a wild night of passion with me, with the kid with the spiked hair. And again, they were pretty disappointed later. But, <laughs> but um, it was paradise that Fluffer, one of the sweetest and most handsome bartenders there, was sick. He dropped his pants and showed me the open sores all over his buttocks from the disease that was making him weaker and thinner. They were calling it gay cancer, and I saw many of my coworkers and customers there start to waste away. And this is when we were told this horrific, ghoulish disease was caused by our degenerate, disgusting indulgences, and that the people afflicted had brought it on themselves. So then people kept it a secret. Uh, as long as they possibly could. Did you hear about John? Did you hear about Scott? Did you, did you hear about Michael? Which one? Uh, Fuller or Jackson? Uh, you didn't have to say anything else. People knew what you meant. Uh, I didn't realize I came in at the tail end of the glory days of paradise and Eddie Dugan. Why would I? I was a selfish little shit, know-it-all, asshole, 22-year-old, who, who thought the world revolved around him because I couldn't see beyond my own world. I didn't realize that Eddie not only created this fabulous haven for gays that wanted to get away from all the oppressive bullshit that they had to put up with in that world made for straight white males, but he made it the place to go to, the place where those asshole straight white males wanted to be seen in. And even though, and I know a lot of people know him. Uh, even though he looked like a cross between Don Knotts and the alien stomach burster, <laughs> he had all the pretty boys laying at his feet. And he had the power players knocking on his door. He was doing lines with Eartha Kitt and rubbing elbows with the chicest of the chic, including the band Chic. 
okay? <laughs> the bar was eventually sold. I think it was bankruptcy, but I suspect drugs might have had a little bit to do with it. Uh, they tried to give it a modern update, even appointing me a bartender for a new wave tea dance. But, <laughs> but no, I got free booze, so. But nobody came, and after many sad reinventions, the place eventually closed. And Eddie opened up another club, Bistro 2, above from Man's Country, but it wasn't the same. And I would guess that 75% of that staff uh, at, the, at Paradise and the Bistro died of AIDS um, easily. I very easily could have been in that group. I have no idea why I'm not. Eddie died in 1987. He was 40 years old. Um, and I thought he was older, but maybe he was. Maybe just, you know, I'm 40. But <laughs> I can see him doing that. Uh, it occurs to me now uh, that Eddie and many of the staff realized their time was limited. So why not go out with a bang? A fabulous mirrored ball bang. Thumb, thumb, thumb. Thumb, 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 thumb. Well, congratulations, you are all part of history. This was the first. I know someone's saying, don't let it be over. <laughs> well, now the stories are up to you, right? Because we want to do this every month at Sidetrack. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. I had a fantastic time. How about you? <laughs> Thanks for joining us. If you've got a moment, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes and subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any podcast platform. Tracy Bain recorded her story at the very first Outspoken in August 2014, Jay Smith in December 2016, and David Serta in June 2016. Outspoken is hosted by Art Johnston and Kim Hunt. I could talk a lot about all of us, Kim and David, me and Archie and all of us, but the real story here are the LGBTQ storytellers who come here and share with us and help us know more about our community, about ourselves, and our audience. Curated by Archie Jamjun. Artistic director is David Fink. Stage manager, Brad Bailoff. Story collector, Ray Teresi. Audiovisual tech, Brian Smith. Podcast producer, Devlin Camp. That's me. Hi. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience. Sidetrack is dedicated to providing entertainment and hospitality in a respectful, safe, and inclusive space for the LGBTQIA community. Find out more at SidetrackChicago.com. You can find out more information about Outspoken at SidetrackChicago.com slash OutspokenChicago. Music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons 4.0. See you next month. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The 10% Show. Join us next time for more special features of Gay and Lesbian Chicago. Chicago.